0: You're listening to Conversionations, the podcast that helps conversion optimizers overcome challenges they face with their experimentation programs. Brought to you by Effective Experiments, the workflow and project management software helping optimizers make experimentation a core part of their business. Scale up your testing program with a centralized solution and document all your research, ideas, experiments, and results in one place learn more and request your free trial by visiting effectiveexperiments.com and now your host manuel de costa okay so we are broadcasting uh
1: people have yet to come in uh, hopefully hopefully they've got the right link this time um but yeah welcome to this uh, special uh episode of conversion nations uh titled mythbusters uh, my name is Manuel da Costa. So whilst we're waiting for people to join in because I've only just hit broadcast right now, uh, people will start filtering through in the next few minutes. So um, if you have joined, uh, what I'd like you to do is to hit the chat button uh, and tell me where you're from. And um, yeah, what's the uh, biggest best practice you think we're going to uh, going to bust on this uh this call so yeah go for it so uh in the chat you you should see a chat um box somewhere icon if you click on it just say hello um tell us that you can hear us hear me for now at least uh and you can see me and yeah uh if you can uh tell us where you're fr- joining from that'll be great um tim how are you doing
2: i'm good arpit says hello so hello arpit You he can hear us um yeah i'm good fella i'm just busy as always
1: Good man. and uh chad uh, chad's been um, in God knows where you've been for a long time now <laughs> uh, good to have you back it's been it's been a year i think so yeah I think the last time we we did um conversionations with you was last year um, yeah how' have things been
3: things are good uh, yeah. changed companies a few times since then so it's gone from Microsoft to uh late stage startup called Convoy where I'm running the data platform now and it is 8 30 in the morning so I'm ready to go.
1: Nice and you're in Seattle is that
3: correct? You're still in Seattle? Yeah we're in we're in Seattle.
1: Good stuff Uh, so uh, Jacob hey Jacob Um, and then uh, Gabrielle hello and he said he can see us but he can't hear us. Uh, Other way
2: around he can hear us but he can't see us. Oh yeah yeah.
1: and then is that uh, Daniela Daniela hello and uh, someone from budapest hungary so i think this is quite a global global attendance over here at least for the for you know this side of the world i'm waiting for someone from um, india or like australia to turn up because that will be like middle of the night
2: yes so that, that's oh india there we go
1: <laughs> our place
2: from... that's commitment well done
1: yeah it's probably quite <laughs> late over there <laughs> uh, no so it, it's good there we go austin texas mel how are you doing uh quite a few people joining so the format for today's um session just to give people an idea of how we're going to run so conversion nations if you haven't attended um uh, any of our live sessions before if you haven't uh, heard our or watched our podcast before it's a fairly relaxed chat show uh, where tim talks way too much and we just sit and listen <laughs> um but really uh, it's, it's really relaxed and the idea being that we want to cover topics that are um, important in the conversion optimization industry uh, that you need to know about as an optimizer whether that's in-house or agency side and um, so we'll be going through points it's uh, we'll just be chatting through it I encourage you to use the chat box to you know talk back engage with us uh, from time to time if there's some interesting points we might bring you on the on the call itself so yeah um, if you're open to that drop us a line um, So what are we covering today? We're covering busting the myths of best practices in the industry. So uh, this was, uh, this came about through a conversation I had with Chad a few weeks ago, and we got talking about certain things that have become um, practice, have become, um, well, best practice, and It's been used without question. So maybe, Chad, it'll be a good idea for you to introduce the topic. And then, yeah, let's take it from there.
3: Yeah, sure. So um, the experimentation and A-B testing and conversion optimization industry is in a kind of a unique place in the world where a lot of the knowledge is sort of hand-me-down, tribal knowledge that uh, people got from big companies or they got from marketer or CRO that's been repeating something for a long time. Um, and they, they haven't either had the chance to apply a lot of critical thought to some of those best practices, or they haven't had um, some of the data science horsepower that you would need to actually challenge those assumptions and see if they're true. There's a lot of uh, technical and non-technical um, assumptions uh, in this field that uh, I've noticed to lead to people making uninformed decisions and, and sometimes uh, getting a lot less value out of their uh, testing programs than they probably should be.
1: Gotcha. And and where has this actually come about from? So you, you mentioned like obviously hand-me-down knowledge from from marketers and CROs. In your opinion, Tim, what, what's been the main reason these practices have become best practices uh, in in our industry
2: <clears throat> because well I'd say it, because you need them short answer seeing as i talk too much um you, you can't come into an industry you can't come into a discipline uh, with the full knowledge of how everything's done you have to start somewhere you have to have some some guardrails and some basic principles which you need to learn uh, when you're learning to paint, you learn the basics of how to paint, you learn how to balance vanishing points and colors and color wheel and stuff. Once you've got good at it, you can start to play with those. You can start to push the, uh, assumptions you can push the the guidelines and the kind of the accepted norms to try and create something new and try and fit to the situation of what you're trying to do at the time so they've come about because we, we need them any discipline has these i think the the risk comes and we're going to talk about a little bit more about this is that <clears throat> part of this discipline should be challenging assumptions that's kind of what we do and i think the frustration comes from when we talked to people um, they've they're parroting back these kind of first stage cast in steel, casting cast in iron things as though they're uh, unimpeachable, to pick a word at the moment. They cannot be questioned. Um, and that's not the case. They've become established because they are a useful set of guidelines to work from. They're a framework by which you can start to learn and start to, to see what happens when you go past those limits and you're aware that there are limits and therefore you're cautious when you go past them but it doesn't mean that you can't ever not challenge them. It doesn't mean that you can't question why they're there and try and use that to then understand the logic that came for that to be in place. You know, when we talk about things like significance, we'll talk some stats later on. um, We didn't, those numbers weren't just invented, but whether they're the correct one to use at any one time is a different question, which once you've got more experience, you can start to examine why and in examining why you learn why those came to be the case, and you then learn whether the and when to apply uh, a level of diligence to those guidelines.
1: Okay, so just to set the the record straight as well, we will be you know quite controversial in some of these ones where we will be um, talking about best practices that you might think are you know irrefutable, but really what we're doing is you know giving you food for thought that you can take away and um, you know. Question it really, um, whether you continue using that—that that is up to you. But you know, we're here to challenge those those um, best practices as well. So let's get on with the first one. Let's let's start right at the deep end. Uh, so the the way this is going to work is, I will read out the 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 best practice, and then the person who suggested that can can introduce that and we can start a conversation on that. So uh, the first one, uh, which was submitted by Chad, was uh, experiments must be run uh, for a minimum of two weeks or two business cycles. Uh, before we start on that, how many of you, um, you know, attending follow that best practice right now? So how many of you out here uh, run tests uh, for a minimum of two uh, business cycles or two weeks uh, you know, I'll raise my hand. I've been guilty of that as well. I've done that. Again, it's best practice. So, yeah, um, I, und- I understand the logic behind that as to why that might be the case. Uh, so, yeah, let me know if you ha- you guys attending have also done that. Uh, leave a comment in the chat. Uh, but for now, Chad, let- let's. That's shocking. I've been doing it all wrong. What have I been doing wrong? So go for it. Please.
3: So. To sort of set the the stage for how I like to um, critically examine some of the best practices in the experimentation industry as a whole, is I really ask two questions. Um, When someone says this is a best practice and we should be doing it this way, the first question is, okay, why is that? And then once you hear the explanation, the next question is, how do you know that that that's the case? And I think as, as experimenters, we're asking that same question of other people, right? If someone says, hey, I have some really great UX design or I have some great marketing campaign, we don't accept it on faith that this is the right way of doing things. We need to have data and we need to have proof that it's the right way of doing things. And so the same thing applies to us. So um, with that out of the way, to quickly explain this idea of uh, running experiments uh, for two weeks or more, um, the, whole, the whole concept of, of setting a set period of time to run an experiment comes from, there's a, there's a few different reasons for it. Uh, the first reason is uh, representativeness of data. So uh, one of the main concepts in experimentation is that you can be uh, statistically significant in a result that you observe, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the number of samples that you've observed is representative of the group. So if you've only observed three or four or or five people, it's going to be not so likely that you're going to make an accurate estimate of uh, what applies to to 1,000 people, or it certainly could be a lot more accurate. Um, And in our business, it's it's actually doubly as tough because uh, the number of users on a website is growing all the time and it's changing all the time. Uh, you have people who are using your website for the very first time. You have people who are leaving your website and this is all happening on the same day. Uh, so running an experiment for a business cycle has become the de facto way of doing things because a business cycle represents or supposedly represents the amount of time that it takes the customer to make uh, basically a, a full interactive loop with your, uh, your website or your application. So conceptually, this makes a lot of sense, right? somebody's activity on a Monday might be very different from their activity on a Tuesday. Uh, someone's activity on a, on a Tuesday might be different from their activity on a Friday or a Saturday. Uh, and one of the things that, that you, uh, the, this best practice ends up telling people is you want to figure out your business cycle first, uh, whatever that cycle is. Uh, so sometimes, it, you know, it could be five days, it could be a week, it could be, it could be two weeks. Uh, and you want to run for at least two of those uh, because I guess you need, to, you need co- to collect more samples and sometimes a person's behavior might change from business cycle to, to business cycle. Um, so that's, that's sort of the, the primary uh, fundamental reason that we run for two weeks. There are some issues with sample size there, especially when you have someone who's very new to experimentation. Uh, they might think you can run an experiment for a few days and that's the end of it. The other main reason that we run an experiment for two weeks is that so we have a finite, definite, uh, standardized ending point uh, for all of our A-B tests. Um, One of the reasons this is a good thing is because if you, uh, as probably everybody in the audience knows, is this problem of peaking. If you see a significant lift at some random point during an experiment and you stop it at that point, there's actually a really high chance that that could just be due to random variation. So instituting some standardization and how frequently we run our tests means we're Analyzing them always at the same point in time, and uh, we can make some assumptions that if we see a significant lift at this point in time that we specified beforehand, then there's a very good chance that, that it's real. So that's the background for the uh, business business cycle.
1: Gotcha. Issue. And so, what's the what's the myth you're going to bust in this case then? With with um, why what should we be doing instead of just the the standard two weeks? I know just to pause you there Mel uh, from uh, Austin, Texas jumped in and she said that well it depends on business cycles and traffic so I think she's already doing it a different way so keen to hear your thoughts uh, Chad on what should people be considering instead?
3: Um, yeah so it's a, it's a really interesting question because if you start to think about logically what the purpose of, of uh, measuring a business cycle is or looking across two weeks is Uh, you start seeing some really unexplainable holes uh, in this entire concept, right? The whole reason, so this comes down to representativeness. The whole reason that we want representative data is fundamentally so that we can make a prediction about the future, right? I want my data to be representative so that I can say in the future, this result is going to continue for X period of time. This is kind of a strange thing to say, right? Because if I run something for two weeks, what is the data that tells me that that two weeks is going to be representative of the next two weeks, right? It's my opinion. I believe that that might be true. I don't know if it's necessarily true. How do I know that those two weeks are representative of the next month or the next three months or the next six months or the next year? Fundamentally, this is what people care about. Um, We don't want representative data so that we can know what's going to happen two weeks from now. We want representative data so that we can know what's going to happen a year from now or, or, or six months from now. Um, So when it comes to representation, and we know that our our website is always changing, and we know that the users are always changing, uh, the two-week mark, it it immediately becomes ridiculous. Uh, It makes no sense how two weeks could possibly be representative of anything, right? We're not qualifying what representation even means, like representative of of what, and, and how do we know that? So this is the first sort of major assumption that people make. Is it two weeks is actually representative of something that they care about That's when it becomes very, very vague and very misty.
2: If it hits a two week magic marker, it's safe, and that's not the case:
1: Yeah, because yeah. Uh, I know we're going to cover this in the next bit, but we we talked about this you know in the past as well, where p- things were hitting statistical significance in the testing tool, and people would call it you know three days later or whatever, and I think that that whole point about hey, don't do it in three days, just give it a set amount of time which over time, as you say, became two weeks. Um, That was that magic marker where people said, okay, this is what it's going to be. So again, just looking at your business cycles, but even then, if you were to consider a full business cycle, whatever that be, how safe are you then? Because that could still not be representative of the next business cycle. Or
2: or payday on a month. So I think it comes down to, uh, and this is where you kind of need to apply some per case logic it comes down to kind of well what are you judging the test on what are your evaluation criteria so if it's something that is going to be and you've got a historical pattern of seasonal or weekly variation as chad said you know the quieter business on a monday busy on a saturday a shift from desktop traffic to mobile traffic over a weekend which is a very common pattern if you know that that's got a historical happening on the site with no tests in place and what you're changing is likely to be affected by that you probably want to account for that in how you build a representative sample and it may mean your sample size is larger than it need be to reach the power you've specified but it means you've got enough of each of those cases but it doesn't necessarily mean that it works three months in the future when your audience has changed your marketing's changed your proposition has changed your competition has dropped the price by half so you can only project and work so far so that two week thing is not so much a myth in terms of it's not a bad piece of initial guidance but it's understanding why two weeks and chad explained at the start that there's here are the logic points to say look as a guide get you an idea here's some logical explanations just think about how different people are just during one week then think about if you only picked one monday you don't have a representative sample of it or enough of their data. You could argue if Monday is the key day, two weeks is far too little, because unless you've got a lot of traffic, you'd need a lot of Mondays to stack up to see how Mondays through the month work because payday Monday is very different to day before, uh, Monday, before payday, just in terms of available cash. So these kind of, so again,
3: so, so Tim, I think, I think that's a, that's a great way of, of uh, thinking about it's one way of thinking about representation. I think the issue that I've seen is that there's not a connection between what people think is representative and what's actually representative, right? There's a lot of assumptions. So even saying something like, well, you know, we need a lot of Mondays. How, how do we know that? Is, is that true? If I ran, if I run an experiment and I put it and I, I take a whole month or maybe I take two months and I see four Mondays what exactly is that representative of? Is that representative of two months, of, of six months, of three months? When is the, the point in an experiment that I can say confidently that this represents something that's going to happen in the future? And, and the reality is, is that most experiments and the academic foundation for this idea of representation came from static data sets. Mm-hmm. It came from data sets that do not change. So if you have a group of 10,000 people at a school, for example, and you wanna understand at that school, at that time, how some particular intervention affects them, then you can take a sample. And by making sure that you have enough classes and and making sure that the gender is split evenly, you can get a representative sample. But there's a fundamental difference in the the web world where our traffic is always changing
0: Mm. and our users are
3: always changing.
2: We talk about it like it's polling. But well, yep. you know people talk about polls and the polls being normalized and we've allowed for this and we've we've re-weighted for according to kind of what our, our polling sample is versus what we know the population to be uh, we don't have those population controls with those population uh, estimates to work with on our website the best we've got is our priors our, you know our analytics data to understand so maybe monday is order day you're working in the auto industry they've had a busy weekend you need to have mondays in there because monday's when all the sales happen weekends likewise for some e-commerce stores but the how far you could project in the future is is partly down to kind of how much you accept that this is going to be flawed like this is not more than oh. a guide and if you want to know then run the same test six months time and run the same test six months time and then over time do a meta-analysis to say this lump of time on this particular thing that we're moving with this particular lever that we're trying to test against it's consistently within this one or two point range it's fairly consistent we can say we move the needle on this you could look at time series analysis so the the myth is that you're safe with two weeks i think the the more complex answer is is always it depends but it depends on the context it's like how accurate do you need to be how important is it that you are accurate and there is a finite limit to the accuracy because of the other factors that are not controlled in our Random controlled experiments. There's there's so many macro factors that aren't controlled. We need to allow for a degree of fudge, which then means that the statistic analysis starts to be. We can't make a zero point zero zero one point differentiation because that's lost in the noise of just life turning up on the website.
1: Yeah, I think this kind of ties in neatly to the next um, best practice that we want to cover. Again, this is one that you've uh, submitted, Chad, which was a winning a significant statistically significant winning test will always give you guaranteed success you know moving forward so give us a little bit of background i you know based on what tim said as well you can see how that flows into this point but give us a bit of background about and let's continue the conversation for all of you watching if you have any thoughts about the first point that was made uh please engage with us drop us a comment we'll read out the your comments and also uh, give us, uh, give you our feedback as well. So over to you, Chad.
3: Sure. Um, and just to, to 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 sort of neatly put a bow on that last point, the, and and not to leave people with a, a feeling of dejection, you know, what what do I do now that I can't run tests for two weeks? That's my um, job. <laughs> I, <laughs> I I I think the the smartest way to handle that is to to challenge the. Um, ask, ask the question right if your goal is to to predict if you want to know if you if you care about that right if you care about I want to predict what 's going to happen at some point of in the future, then you should be using uh, a, a predictive mechanism you should be using a, a metric that is actually predictive of, of what is going to happen in the future and I can tell you now as somebody that 's uh, implemented those it is it's not easy. <laughs> that is a very, very difficult thing to do even with a, a team full of some of the brightest the data scientists um, in the world. So if you want to go that route, then you need a predictive mechanism and the bow on this is if you have a predictive mechanism, then guess what? It doesn't matter how long you run your test for. Uh, if, you're, if you can re- truly trust your prediction, you can run it for a day and if that prediction is telling you that over three weeks or three months or, or six months, these are the things that are, that are going to happen, and you trust that prediction, and there's no reason to run it for for two weeks. I will say that that is going to be aspirational um, for most people. Uh,
2: so, so if they, I was going to say if, that, if that's the if that's yeah. the, the ray of hope to stop from despairing, <laughs> should you not happen to have a multi-million-pound corporation that scientists behind you, what would be the the, the the best way around that? It's kind of that, so
3: I think I will. Uh, there is a, a larger sort of body of suggestions that. Uh, I think would be good that's easier to understand once we cover the uh, statistics part actually. So, yeah, um, so, so so talking about so talking about the statistics, um, statistics are a really big part of experimentation, obviously. Like for anyone who, who is not familiar, AV testing, digital AV testing did not invent this whole concept of experimentation and statistical significance that. That existed for you know, almost a hundred years, uh, actually I think just over a hundred years before uh, any of us uh, started, started doing this web stuff with Optimizely and, and Adobe Target. Um, and so there are some, some pretty well thought out, philosophical rules for what the statistics that we're using actually represent. And it's very complex and it's been refined over a long period of time. And once you get to the stage that we're at where experimentation is being provided for non-technical people sometimes, sometimes marketers, sometimes analysts, sometimes software engineers who are not familiar with experimental statistics, uh, then the meaning behind those statistics gets dumbed down and dumbed down and dumbed down and dumbed down, and dumbed down so uh, that people can understand it and, and make decisions. Um, there's a lot of uh, a conversation about what is the best statistical methodology to use in an experiment. So you've got frequentists on one side uh, and frequentists are mainly concerned with p-values and error rates and confidence intervals and and things like this uh, that are essentially telling you um, if I assume that my my data is wrong, right? That I'm just looking at a, a random variation that I would have observed anyway, how unusual is that variation, right? And then the, the degree of strangeness is how we determine what we accept as a true result. So typically you have a P value of 0.05 that represents that. And what that number actually means is roughly 5% of the time, if I were to run an AA test, like if I ran a hundred AA tests, 5% of the time I would see a change uh, as great or greater than what I've observed in my experiment. Right.
2: When, when no change had actually happened.
3: When no change had actually yeah, happened. False exactly. yeah. So, so, so that's so that's one camp, and it's all it's really all about saying let's sort of understand the level of risk that we have, as Tim was alluding to earlier. On the other on the other camp, you have the Bayesians, and Bayesians focus on priors, and priors are all about using information uh, that we have from some other source in order to make a, a weighted decision is the way you can think about it. So, a great example that I've heard is uh, if someone comes up to you and says, "Hey, I can flip a coin uh, ten times in a row." and it's all going to land on heads and then they actually do that a frequentist might say wow you know the likelihood of that happening is one out of 1084 which is the chances of getting 10 heads in a row um that's a really rare amazing surprising thing and i think that this person really does have some magical skill whereas the bayesian might say something like yeah i'm the fact that you did that makes me doubt that this is actually a real coin in the first place. And so I'm going to inject some of my personal bias, which is that this is not a real coin and this is not a real event, right? And so those are sort of the two types of uh, statistics that people primarily use when evaluating experiments.
1: Interestingly um, enough over there, Chad, just as you, mm-hmm. you started on that, I started smiling because Corey just messaged and this was a, a oh, conversation. Yeah. Oh, yeah, do you prefer Bayesian or, or Frequentist? He's just started with Bayesian and it's helping him make calls with smaller populations and testing windows. And I think that's the whole charm of Bayesian. like You don't need that massive sample size. You don't need uh, you know, that, that large population to make your, your judgment calls. And he's asking, am I thinking about that correctly? Separately, uh, when I was collecting the points that we were gonna talk about and those best practices, uh, Tim, one of Tim's points was frequentist versus Bayesian versus here's my own flavor, TM. Right, so and you go, it's not yeah. just that. Then you've special got special
2: source, special source Bayesian. do forget, so it's <laughs> not just Bayesian, it's our special algorithm Bayesian.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've got optimized uh what's it called? Uh, um, What are they called? Some stats engine. And then VW have their own kind of take smart, on it. Smart, smart something. Smart stats, yeah, right. Smart stats,
2: there you go. See, branding, it works.
1: Right, so is it just all hot air or, or again? Again, people want something that they can rely on. And I think with best practices, as, as we talked about at the start, it's like you want some guidelines. You want some things yeah. to fall back on to say that you're not making silly mistakes. Right?
2: Chad can do the math side of it. But I would, yeah. I would say kind of the, the, the fact that Corey asked this question kind of indicates why we have special source Bayesian. and kind and Bayesian and frequentist arguments and why we discuss which one's the best method to use and notice nobody's Mm -hmm. mentioning anything that doesn't do with binomial stuff so we're not talking about anything where you've got kind of other statistical stuff tri-squared tests to see if there's a real difference these sort of things are all us trying to answer the question quicker yeah I want to get a clearer answer with less data and whilst I understand that motivation because yeah um, doing it for that reason having a special source to go well this gives me the answer that I was wanting and therefore I can with false confidence perhaps go ahead with what I was going to do anyway I think is where that becomes dangerous I think the the risk from the technologies tends to be we kind of uh, give away our responsibility for looking at the actual data and go the tool says it's right or the method says it's right. Therefore, it's right. Therefore, go ahead. And there may be a selection bias in the choice of stats that we do mainly down to if it gives us the answer we want or it gives us the answer we want in the period we want it to be rather than is it a representative sample. Does it actually match the priors? Did we pick the right priors? Is it repeatable? Is it appropriate? method to use for the particular type of data I'm trying to spot, you know, th- those things tend to fall into the considerations when you're doing it properly. But frequentist versus Bayes tends to be the argument we end up having. And it's kind of like either of them, if you know what you're doing with them.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, Jacob, uh, added into that, uh, but isn't the special thoughts, just human desire to iterate on the best into a
2: hopefully better best. I I think the special source Bayesian is more about marketing than anything else, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) So Chad, over to you, so I'll allow you to continue uh,
1: the point you were going to make before I jumped in
3: with all of this. Sure, Uh, so there's actually a a few points here, and some of them addresses the questions that uh, Corey had and also the ones that Jacob had. So um, I think, and this goes back to the first thing I said, which whenever you're thinking about these types of best practices, what you should always do is ask the questions why first and how do you know that second and uh, how are you measuring that right so um if i'm choosing between the difference uh, or choosing between a frequentist algorithm and a bayesian algorithm and I'm, and I'm trying to make up my mind there's there's two real questions i need to ask myself the first one is if i ran an experiment using uh three different types of measures not not actually two so bayesian frequentist and no statistical algorithm at all, I just looked at the differences between the two numbers uh, from control and treatment, would my have practical decision been different either way? Um, We actually measured this at Microsoft and the answer in the vast majority of cases is is actually no. Um, Those algorithms, uh, when you have a result that is real or when the signal is very strong, uh, you could actually detect that just by looking at the pure delta of two numbers. And you could say this is above um, some, uh, some threshold that I care about. Uh, and usually that threshold uh, matches with the P values and it matches with R squared and it matches with whatever other statistical value that you have. Then um, there's cases like the ones that, that Corey mentioned. So by the way, if you haven't done that already, you should do it. Uh, it is an extremely valuable exercise and it'll probably really open your mind and, and hopefully move you away from this whole statistical war. Uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the advocates of, of either methodology actually haven't run their tests on the other methodology and compared. So you're sort of arguing about something in a vacuum that, that doesn't matter too much. Um, then there's, there's, there's cases where it does matter. So um, Corey's case where uh, when I'm running a, a Bayesian algorithm and potentially a special sauce algorithm, I am seeing a difference in results. So maybe I'm getting my my uh, significance uh, faster. I'm getting a result faster, whatever whatever that may be. So there's a second question there, and that goes back to the first problem. Whereas what we really care about is what's happening over a long period of time, right? We care about not necessarily what's happening over week one. Ooh, my voice broke. But what's happening over week two or week three or month six or month seven. Um, and And this is sort of the fundamental problem I think, with a lot of the statistical considerations in experimentation right now is people haven't really take, taken a step back and and explained to a business leader what experiment statistics are actually providing them and so in my head, the conversation, a realistic conversation, which you almost never gets, but a realistic conversation would go something like this right you you got a winning test result, and you go to your boss, you say, hey you know we we just increased the." Increase revenue by 2% and that has a, a, a p-value of 0.05, right? And the boss says, awesome, that's great. So how much money am I going to make this year? And you go, well, I can't tell you how much money you're going to make this year, but I can tell you how much you're going to make over the course of the experiment, right? Over the course of the experiment, you made uh, about $10,000. We ran it on a uh, 90-10 uh, traffic split. And so theoretically, you know, if we had been running it on, on this the whole time, we would have made something like $100,000. And so you can, you can see, you know, understand for yourself how much that would actually extrapolate to. And he's like, okay, all right, that's great. So what you're saying is I'm going to make $100,000 next month when I run this experiment. You go, no, well, you know, there's not really any way of knowing that. I, I can give you a range of what it might be. And you say, like, okay, great, you, you give me a range. So you're saying for sure it's going to fall between $80,000 and one you are going to add that to my bank account, and I'm going to be able to see that every single month and hold you accountable for it. Like, oh, well, no, I mean, technically it it, it could change, you know, it's likely, it's likely it'll happen next month, but maybe six months from now, maybe that'll change. Like, okay, so, so what assurances can you actually give me? What can you tell me definitely actually happened? They say, well, all that we know actually happened is that over a two week period, I made you $10,000. And the business leader is going to look at you and go, so you're telling me, that I'm paying $500,000 for an experimentation platform, and I'm paying your salary, and for all the salaries of all the other people that are coming up with the experiments, and you can only tell me that over this two-week period, it made $10,000. That's not a valuable business question to answer, um, because there's always a chance that that $10,000 over the next two weeks falls to zero. I mean, theoretically, if if anything can happen, it could become negative. In fact, I've worked in Uh, with experiments that have actually become negative uh, over time and they've changed to become negative over time. And so that, that, that comes back to this question of what do these numbers actually represent? And if we're squabbling about do we use Bayesian, do we use frequencies, do we do this, do we do that? And we're not thinking about what's happening long term. If we're only focused on this really small sliver of the population, we're kind of missing the forest for the trees
1: so you said about extrapolating those numbers so a lot of times you know uh, as you said when optimizers talk about revenue especially in terms of a test they've run they've taken that number and it by you know the next 12 months or whatever and given that number now that also is what well for want a better word a best a best practice because you're you're explaining to the business how much money you're bringing in but i've been Privy to quite a few conversations where stakeholders are essentially looking at that, especially CFOs, looking at the numbers where agencies have promised them that uplift in, you know, that guaranteed uplift in that revenue based on the test they've run. And they look at their bank account and it's nowhere to be found,
2: right? It's short on that by quite a few. Yeah. Um, (laughs) That's the thing. It's like, strictly speaking. That, that's kind of what they're saying. That, that you know, we did this test, and if you multiply flat with all things being equal and all traffic being exactly the same as the sample we did last time, and 95% of the time it being exactly the same, not just a false positive, then that is the range of numbers you would get. So yeah. if it's not the number range of numbers you get, then it goes back to what Chad started out by saying: is that you can't control those other bits. Yeah. You know, so it is a proof that there was a change. It is a proof up to the parameters you set but that proof does not translate to and it will also play out like that in the real world it's a guidance which may help with repeated testing going no there's definitely something along these lines because every time we do something like that it goes up and we see it in the bank but the actual amount it goes up by and the time over which it goes by and how it works per audience will vary just the same as your marketing campaign that was a massive success last summer you tried to do it again this summer didn't work as well New competitor market new, market. new competitor. You you misjudged the tone. Yeah. You tried. You tried to dust off last year's slogan, which wow, was brilliant. We should do that again. Let's do summer campaign V two. The revenge. And guess what? That didn't work. Yeah. You know, as so,
1: Corey said as well, he's jumped in and said, like all things uh, being equal, is yeah. the key over
2: here. So right? so that that caveat's frequently missed off that, but I think the reason why it becomes discredited is what Chad said is because then the CFO goes, looks at the bank account, and goes. That's weird, I don't see anything close to that. I do see a lot of withdrawals for the costs of all this, but I don't see large lumps of cash turning up at the same amount. So it it comes down to the explanation piece, comes down to the comms piece in terms of- So here's the thing then, right? Um,
1: And and this kind, I want to interject over here because a lot of times, and recently I've been part of some LinkedIn conversations where people are saying, well, we shouldn't be experimentation, we should be looking more for successes, right? And I think again, if you're talking to the CFO and you're talking to senior stakeholders and you're saying, "Yeah, all our tests are, you know, surefire successes," um, and then this happens, I think it puts you in a really bad position. Um, how would you, how would you really go about, you know, presenting experimentation in front of a, sta- of a, of, um, a stakeholder that's skeptical, right? Because they've seen promises like this. And chances are now that CRO has been going around for, well, about nearly a decade, I think, um, or at least half of, half of that decade uh, in a more mature way, um, you're going to get people questioning the, the validity of experimentation. You know, and then they're not going to invest in that. And that's a real threat to the industry. So how, if you're starting in a business today, let's say you're, you're day one At this company how would you position experimentation and optimization it's not just about a b testing we'll come to that later but how do we position this optimization program in a way that makes sense to the cfo where they where they're willing to invest in it and where you don't you know put yourself in a corner by making these you know flagrant promises really so
3: so i and to to add on to what tim was saying before um i have some experience in these enterprise tech companies, not to sound fancy, you know, Oracle, Microsoft, these types of things. And uh, a, a lot of people think that because these these big companies that have all these resources uh, and they've been doing it for so long, you know, they're the originators of this stuff, that they're not going through this, right? It's small and medium-sized businesses and new people to the market. They're the ones going through this. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine that used to be a head of product at Amazon, and he says that this happens every single quarter, where product teams would say, this is how much money our experiments made. And the P&L team would say, if that was true, then that means that everything else that we are doing at the company is generating negative value. It is is impossible for that to be the case. And I think that this is fundamentally the largest issue that faces experimentation, because it means we're kidding ourselves about the value that we're actually making, right? in terms of how we position experimentation and optimization uh, to our CFOs and, and, and to other leaders, I would say that one of the fundamental problems we have is that we, we shut ourselves in the foot uh, in the foot in terms of our messaging, right? If you go back and you look at a lot of the articles that were written about A-B testing and experimentation and optimization and what it can do. It's usually billed as the gold standard for strategic decision-making. It's a way to always validate the impact of your changes. And the reality is that is not true. Um, You you don't actually know what the true impact of your change uh, really is. You're making a short-term estimation based on a very limited set of metrics that could change at any point for pretty much any reasons. Um, and because we've, we've really narrowed ourselves into that box of having this almost godlike uh, Cassandra level prediction capabilities, then anything less than that is gonna be seen as bad, right? Anything, anything less than that where we say, hey, maybe we can't, we can't accurately predict, but you know what we can do is we can make sure that it, any features that you do decide to launch Uh, they don't have bugs in them, right? We can do that. We can make sure that there's no bugs. We can make sure that there's no uh, critical errors. Um, Those are the types of things that we can do really, really reliably. But because we've oversold ourselves so much, um, most people aren't going to accept that anymore. So it's going to, I think, in my opinion, it's either going to require a massive shift to be able to do great prediction, which I can honestly tell you I've never seen. I've never seen... Uh, really great predictive metrics uh, being executed well at scale Um, or we're going to have to make a big shift towards a more of a a, a rollout uh, centric method of experimentation which to me is actually really freeing and it should be freeing for a CRO because that means that you can focus more on the user experience. You can focus more on the business problems that you believe are true, that are based on your experience, and then when you roll them out, what you're really doing is making sure that nothing is breaking.
2: Yeah, do um, no harm. It's like a Hippocratic Oath. It's like, do no harm. Right, right. Uh, and I think the problem with that sales pitch, and I, I, had, I had this conversation with a client before Christmas, is kind of, yeah, I don't care about that UX stuff, I just want money in my bank. Yeah, <laughs> and, so, uh, and I'm just kind of like, okay. So t- talking about
1: that as well, uh, you know, just as predicted, I knew someone would come up with this. And uh, G- uh, Gabrielle, as I said, so uh, what is my main argument to sell a CRO operation? Uh, I believe Gabrielle is uh, uh, from the agency side. So how how does he go to a client and,
2: and promise anything if he can't promise anything? Okay, that's so, so, so user uh, behavior. Uh, yeah, that's. To, I think we we kind of fall back onto. Well, it's all about learning. It's like, um, I, I would say the gold standard that's been held up has been um, uh, has been holdout testing. So you you hold back a proportion of the audience who never see a test, and therefore that's the that's the baseline that you you're going to go. And I kind of I've argued against that as being a, a truly uh, measurable gold standard because people change. People will drop in and out of groups whether you can do it or not. Um, the value is people are making these decisions daily. Anyway, they're doing releases daily. Anyway, with no data, they're making these gut calls without measuring the before and after. And it's only when it's already hit the bottom line and they've lost money. They then try and go back and unpick to see which of the many 12 changes they made last week was that impacting factor. Yeah. So the value to it is going, it may not give us a definitive answer of which one of these things gave us this five pound, $5 specifically, but the accumulated mass of learning the accumulated mass of being able to monitor these things as they go out the door and applying some level of science to try and we're trying to push this lever we push that more often this thing goes up more gives us some control over what goes out whereas at the moment without testing stuff's still going out the door you still got releases you still got marketing going out you still got changes in audience you still got these things which is not quantified so tell me which is riskier doing it blind and not knowing until you're out of business Doing it blind, getting a massive win, but then not knowing which factors factored the most into that and trying to repeat it. My amazing summer sale last year and a terrible one this year, we did the same things. I don't know why it didn't work. Probably because there were other factors you didn't account for last year that you failed to account for this year. But yeah. if you had been measuring it, if you'd been a trying to tweak factors, you may have picked the right ones, you may have not. But if you've prodded the thing as it goes out the door and try and see which levers have an effect you know which ones are likely to have a greater effect you have got a quantification over the body of work to go these things are dangerous if you mess with them things go up and down drastically this thing no matter what we do to it is stable the deviation on it is basically what the deviation is and nothing we do changes it unless there's a market shift and these things are temporal we can shift them by large amounts, but their effect is the two week period, which was relevant for. And after that, all we know is this might work in a sale period. So there's still value to doing it. It's just the, the definitive put your house on it stuff is not there. It never was, but the, I can put my house on the fact that somebody who is paying no attention to this and just shoving stuff out reactively is less prepared for a future that throws them a curveball than somebody who has been measuring stuff as it goes out the door and has at least got an idea of the power of the factors that they've got to play with and the levers they can use to affect that. It's a difference between riding a boat down a waterfall and steering away from the waterfall. It's risk mitigation at the end of the day, right? Yeah, which is less sexy unless you're a CFO. Yeah. At which point yeah, it becomes it becomes very sexy. So, uh, but humans are weird creatures. Like we overestimate risk and we underestimate win. Um, so, we, we end up with this kind of dichotomy psych- psychologically where we end up with a very risk averse board who definitely don't want to lose money, but they have promised the world that they'll get 20% year on year growth no matter what. And yeah. so, with
1: no, with no control over the, the variables. So, the-
2: that's a conversation you end up having quite a lot. And to go back to the question, what value can you add is like when you are having that conversation and somebody goes, We've got 20% year on year growth planned. Why? Because that's what my target's based on. Okay. You go, OK, well, looking back over the previous six years, you've never managed more than 3%. And the market itself is in static and you're changing nothing. Your budget's flat relatively and there's two more competitors in market. So what are you changing? Which lever are you pulling that's going to make a 20% uplift year yeah. on year? And if and I, want, up-
3: I want to quickly uh, add a couple of things and then answer two questions that, that came in as well. So, so to, to, to Tim, to build on what you were saying just a second ago um, with, a, with a practical example of this. So when I worked at Microsoft, Bing actually ran experiments on about 90% of their code deployments, mm-hmm. Not features, code deployments, right? So, these are not things that people sat down and said, I'm going to come up with a test. This is, you have an engineer somewhere that wants to improve latency, that if I wanna make a back-end change, even migrate from one database to another database, that all went out as an experiment. And what they found is that ex- experimenting on 90% of code changes uh, on deployments, 30% resulted in something negative for the business. 30% of deployments, right, not features. So think about how many code deployments are happening at, at your company every single day they're getting no test insight where some engineer is building something that they think is going to be valuable and it could, in some strange way, result in a negative business impact. Uh, Netflix does 4,000 deployments a day, 4,000 deployments a day, right? So imagine, imagine if that is a, is a similar statistic for your business. 30% of code deployments are bad. And if you're running even, uh, even a few hundred, uh, deployments every single month, and 30% of them are bad, and that 30% contributes a few thousand dollars to some negative uh, business impact, we're talking about seven to eight figures in, in value and uh, cost being saved the company. So a lot of people look at experimentation as a lottery ticket, uh, and I think Tim actually made this analogy earlier, where you're, you're sort of throwing your bets in a basket, and you're seeing if you get some, some amazing thing that comes out of it, I actually see it a lot more as an insurance policy Uh, it's always going to be a cost center but it's about how much it saves you when things go wrong if you can put a million dollars into experimentation and save the company a hundred million dollars from bad features that would have gone out without you that's a huge win a massive win Um, and then to to mention the, the two points that have sort of come in since we've been talking uh jacob said My take on predictions is that they start becoming more valuable than no predictions at all. When they're correct more than 51% of the time, I 100% agree with that. The problem I have is that we have uh, no way, or generally most people have no no way of actually assessing the quality of those predictions. Right. Um, And the teams, the teams that usually do this have, a much better, a much better prediction or they're focusing a lot more of their effort on, on building those predictions. In fact, a, a 51% prediction is freaking awesome. If you could, if you could, if you could predict accurately 51% of the time, that means that you've probably invested a lot of resources into figuring out what those predictions, uh, what those predictions actually are. Um, and then from, or I, I will say, so there's, there's a, there's someone that you should, uh, if you don't follow them already. Uh, Andrew Anderson, I know he was on the show maybe you know, a little over a year ago. He's done, one of the things I like that he's done is he's taken sort of an ad hoc approach to this where because he focuses his optimization program on only massive wins, he only goes after massive wins. Then what that lets him do is look back in the future, do a holdout or do a reverse flight later and see those wins continue to maintain because they're so big, right? Maybe, they, maybe the impact's gone down a little bit, maybe it's changed. But because he's focusing on things that are so large, the sort of ad hoc learning he's gotten is that really, really big wins tend to carry forward into the future. And that's probably an example of a prediction that does better than than 51%. And then Daniela's question, which is, wouldn't we compromise on innovation if we don't experiment and then potentially miss opportunities? I think that is a great point and not to put you on the spot, but I think that is one of the things that has almost killed this industry. there's absolutely nothing wrong with that thought. It's it Really, it's, it's another, it's another uh, best practice that needs to die. But so many times I've opened up my phone or I've gone onto a website and I'm just inundated with download this now. I remember I was trying to use Quora the other day And I I literally got a pop-up that didn't give me the ability to X out of it, right? I could only go and download the app. And like, there's so many frustrating experiences like that that are happening all over the web that I'm about 99% sure are the result of experiments and seeing these incremental improvements in a metric over a small window of time, right? Downloads go up, clicks go up. Right, even even revenue yeah. or conversions might potentially New, go
2: up. News, newsletter signups. It's like yes, but what's newsletter your churn rate? Up. You, you've, and, and Corey and... mentioned about churn on the SaaS product. Like it's like, you know, the, the the business we're coming on to the next point. I think, uh, uh, Manuel, but I think the business cares more about money in the bank at the end of twelve months. So, but your yeah. acquisitions team target is number of people signing up for the free trial. And yeah. the relationship, you were saying I lot about your predictive metric, is that there's a very poor prediction between number of signups and retained money unless you have other knowledge of what affects that. And yeah. so exactly. the innovation question, kind of what else can we do, where do I provide value, is it's why are we doing these releases? We're not just doing code drops the sake doing code drops, we're trying to improve how it works, latency, user experience. And generally, yes, why should I pay for user experience? I just want results. There is a very strong predictor in terms of sites that are easy to use tend to do better. All things being equal, if you've got a competitor who sells the self same product and an awful lot of stuff is commodity and you've got similar delivery costs and you've got similar reputations and you're fighting a similar fight on Google for the search results. If your site is easier to use, faster to use and more reassuring and your customer service when you do sell is better, you'll win next time versus that same competitor. And which test made a difference on that? All of them. You now, if that's what you tested to get towards, that's what you'll do. And on a SaaS product, if it solves my problem, if it's easy to use, if it's a pleasure to use, if I recommend it to somebody and they go, oh, that sorted my life out. These are factors that you can't A, B test. They're qualitative touchy feely stuff. But if you're trying to code release and then these are the objectives of the business, if you're user centric, that tends to end up with the end result is if you're user centric users will reward that with cash and pounds make prizes that's that's i I think
1: i think with this whole best practice thing as well uh, it it kind of almost devolves from you know all the points you made to like hey we need an easy answer to just fill in the blanks and state how we're making money all this stuff that we're talking about is actually hard work Right, and because you know, saving the business money and all that kind of stuff, yeah, that's all well and good, but we need innovation. We need. I, to- I need
2: low-hanging fruit. Yeah, low well, fruit. All very well and good. We'll get on to that. Yeah. As, as soon as we've got these quick wins, they'll pay for that stuff. Yeah. I need some low-hanging fruit. It's like that's not how the force works.
1: Yeah, which brings me to the next point, which brings me to the next point, and this is something I've seen used as a KPI quite often. This is the point that you brought up, Tim. Mm-hmm. Uh, tests per month as a KPI, more tests equals more uh chances of winning which sounds kind of right like the more times you oh, test- yeah
2: there's a grain of truth in all of these we're not turning around and saying these are myths that we kind of like i can't believe you believe that yeah. it's just actually i think it's misappropriation there is a relationship between you know chad just dropped it. You know, Netflix, big successful company, known for having a testing culture. Spotify, Microsoft. Oh, we did thousand. Amazon famously has been the poster boy for this for two decades. Um, a minute or something, right? Yeah. if, we, if we, all we need to do is test it's like, and people go, yeah, well, I want to be like Amazon, but that that takes me back to like speaking to e-commerce stores in 2002 and them going, I want to be like a, a Amazon. It's like, okay, fine. Or well, people talking to them now. I'm going to be the Amazon of it's like it's kind of a shorthand for I want to be big, big e-commerce. It's like okay, well, ten years, ten billion dollars, you might have a chance. It's kind of no, no, I'm going to be like them tomorrow. It's like that. It's relative to what you're going to do. So there is a relationship between velocity of testing and the opportunities you have to learn and avoid risk and find risk. And fine, but to get four thousand code releases out a day, you need to have enough devs who can do four thousand code releases you need to have them QA to the point where they're at least not fundamentally broken when they go out. And so it's become mixed up as a myth in terms of if you're not testing faster, if you were doing 10 tests last year, you're going to do 20 this year, 30 next year. And if you're not growing at that speed and increasing the number of tests, you're not testing properly. And it comes, but if we go through what we just discussed, testing is a lot more complex than that. So you've got to get very good at doing some complicated stuff faster. And it's that KPI therefore is something which people would then turn around and try and fake. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying fake in terms of put no test live, but I'm saying fake in terms of they're not what I would consider tests. Quality over quality basically. Yeah. And and if you do nothing but good tests and you do that faster, yes, you're gonna go faster up until you reach the hard limits of what your traffic can deal with or as chab was alluding to you're just in test fatigue with the audience because all they get when they come to the site is just test after test after test it and then you hit different statistical and you know organizational barriers in terms of what your overhead is That that kind of we have got a kpi of x tests per month we've got a kpi of x test per year we don't get to grow the team until we've got it's kind of what are those tests being used for what value do they bring to the company because it's going to be company specific and is going faster going to improve the results we get or is doing them better and laying foundations to allow ourselves to do better tests faster in the future going to be long-term more productive for us? Yep. Because if you're doing 10 tests and you've got exactly the same staff next year and you went out 20 tests...
1: Same level of, of rubbish that's going in and out.
2: You've got half as much resource to uh, develop to it. So what is your KPI? Is, have I got twice, that good, twice as good at getting tests out the door to a minimum standard? Because if I haven't, if my team aren't twice as good at testing, if my QA is not twice as fast, if I, they don't go out the door with the same level of miss rates, because there will be things that break, then no, all I've done is, is fallen on my face faster. And that's where I think as a KPI as, is a myth. If you're not testing this much faster, you're going, I'm not saying that it doesn't have merit because more good stuff is good. But it's the good stuff part to that is critical, and I believe that the speed and haste and the desire to hit some arbitrary per test per month target is where I fall over. Now, if that, you thats are-
1: another promise that's being made, right? So I know, like, people work, you know, on a certain—they—they have those targets in house. They have those targets, have those targets uh, agency side. They're given a certain amount of tests that they need to build. But in my opinion, like, if you think of a, a test, any test uh, has a cost attached to it. It has um, resources attached to it and has bandwidth, right? The fact that every test you launch will cost you something. It will um, block out part of your bandwidth, which you you can't test on that again uh, for that time and you've got resources because everyone's kind of building the tests or working and,
2: and churn and burnout and training people up. So yeah, Ch- yeah. Chad, Chad and I have talked about this on a previous podcast. I'm sure you you have a little thing to see what episode it is, but I'm pretty sure we've talked about this before, but if you have, for example, you, you, you cap out, you can only run 12 tests a year, one a month. That's what your audience level do just because the numbers easier. If next year you run 12 successful tests, last year you got lucky 12 successful tests, take what successful looks like later on. And next year you do 12 successful tests, but you are, you halve the cost for doing so. If, if you get better at it, you make less mistakes in QA, people do it faster. You can, if you want to be sneaky about it, do it with people who've got less skill because you've built a system that allows the shaved monkey to pull the levers and you get out the door cheaper. If the same success rate on the tests and the same effective value however you're calculating that but you've halved your costs your ROIs improved and that's probably where if you want to go oh okay I could run twice as many tests it's like yes you can as long as the quality doesn't drop I think the
3: and to to add on to that Tim I like I'll even take a harder stance than you and say that (laughs) I think that um, experimentation teams and optimization programs that are uh, taking, uh, or making their primary metric, something like number of tests run, are, are doing a disservice, uh, not only to the company that they work for, but also to, to themselves and, and their skills. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, com- number of tests run is completely separate from business value. Yep. It has nothing to do with business value whatsoever. And so when you when you set number of tests run or any metric about you know, number of tests or something, number of people adopting our program or, or anything like that. There's another assumption that you're making, which is that a) you're you're doing the right thing, and I think in the vast majority of the cases, people are not, and and b) that it's adding equal levels of value for everybody, which is absolutely not true. Um, and so as soon as as soon as a lot of these teams move away and they start moving away from, hey, let's just measure ourselves. There's, a, there's actually a a term that a philosopher named Nassim Taleb used is called Wittgenstein's ruler. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind Wittgenstein's ruler is that unless you have absolute faith in the quality of the ruler that you're using to measure a table, you're indirectly using the table to measure the ruler. So if the only thing that your team can report on is something like the number of tests, well, there's a good chance that that's the only value that you're actually adding. Um, And it says nothing about your ability. Like if you, you know what I mean? Like if you, if you can't actually report on, hey, we saved the company this much money, or we made the company this much money, or some, some business value, it it probably means that you're not doing that. If you lack the capacity to measure it uh, altogether. So what I would, I would strongly recommend is to start reframing your optimization programs around value. If you take the approach that Manuel and I had talked about before, and, and Tim, of risk mitigation and of catching problems early, then you can do that, right? That's something that you can actually measure. Like if you know, for example, that a feature is buggy and you were able to catch that really, really early, then you can build somewhat of a counterfactual and say, hey, in, an, in a world where we didn't have experimentation, how long would it have taken us to, to, test, to, to actually catch that? And you can measure that. You can actually measure it now. You can go and talk to your engineering teams. You can say, hey, how long does it take you to catch bugs? When you deploy something that you know has a, has a bug in it, like is it a week? Is it two weeks? When you, when you have something that and there's a bug or there's some issue that has a business impact, how long does it take you to, to realize that? Um, and if we sort of try to cut that time down to the shorter and shorter and shorter period, that's actually real business value that we can report on.
2: Yeah, and if we, if we do that by spending, our team gets better at it, we can either take on more bugs or we can spend less to do the same amount of work. And it's, it ends up adding up to a kind of a positive reinforcement cycle, but that also gets away from kind of one of the, yeah, like I said, I think disservice is the right word. It's, 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 it's hamstringing your ability to do what's needed for the business because it puts in a basically a vanity metric, you know, more tests out done more efficiently is good for the agency. It's good for the team because It fits their budgets and their targets, but it's not the business's benefit most of the time, unless you're charging the business less or able to fix more of their problems.
1: I think the challenge here as well is not just the optimizer, because, again, what I've seen sometimes optimizers lack, you know, they have the skills in in running the tests and creating the tests and stuff. But it's the soft skills and the sales skills that I think you had talked about in in some thread online, uh, Tim. Yeah. The fact that you know they're having to influence someone else to do it differently or to consider this differently, I don't think that's there in this industry just yet. Uh, on the counter uh, of that, you've got management that don't, in my opinion, don't really know what good looks like. So you've got two um, forces that are kind of trying to basically maintain the status quo because this management, again, What's an easy thing to measure people on? What can we measure them on? Well, number of tests, uh, uplift, revenue. And those numbers are actually then, as Chad said, doesn't actually add business value because it, it doesn't really uh, bring in money or it doesn't increase customer satisfaction. And anything that we can talk about is within that the frame of that uh, the duration of the test.
2: Yeah, so, so I think that, I mean, they do, Provide value. Those, you know, how many tests do we get? But it comes down to that. Help the business. So, how many product owners' questions did we answer in a way that helped them or helped them avoid risk? Yeah. Because that that's a value to the business. Yeah. And it's kind of how much was that worth? Well, it's how much is that product section worth? How much does it cost us to run versus what we could have lost? So the the I don't want to use the word paradigm shift, but it's the only word I can think of. The, the shift in perspective in terms of how we look, look for that is kind of we need to help the business understand that this is part of a toolkit that really kind of can be and should be embedded across the whole of the way we're working. Because if we all think about making things better from the call center to how we handle HR, then the business becomes more efficient. Yeah. And the more efficient business has more money to be more effective. And efficiency and effectiveness are quite often... Mixed up, but getting the same for less money or doing a better job with with what we're pushing in is is how you differentiate yourself. Differentiate yourself. It's going to be, depending on the market you're in, a competitive advantage. So, adding to value is if if we just stood still, if we at- accepted that we flip the coin 50% of the time we're right, 50% of the time we're not. 30% of our code releases are damaged to the company. That's the, we're going forward at the, at the rate at the pace we can currently go forward speed. If the rest of the market is outpacing, outpacing us, we're actually at a relative disadvantage and the the failure to move forward fast enough or efficiently enough is actually going to put us at a market disadvantage. And in some cases, and you're seeing this with certain search providers, um, they end to the point where once you've got that elephant in the room, the 800 pound gorilla in the market, there's no coming back from that, and they're in a dominant position, which means you can, they can play the game slightly differently. They can play the market forward. So if you are in growth up uh, startup place, or if you're in the SaaS space and you're a competitive market, or if you're an e-commerce person trying to fight for budget and fight for oxygen on on the Google results and the Bing results, being better at doing that and knowing what better could look like, and having a good list of things as to what bad looks like is a competitive advantage and yeah. you only need to be better than the next man you know how fast do i have to run away from the bear how fast do you run because i only need to be faster than the person behind me yeah. and that that's kind of uh, it's not as sexy as l that's the problem this is where yeah, that, said, it
1: all comes down to that right i think with a lot of these best practices it's like how do we package this up and put a bow on it that you know the stakeholders will buy because ultimately uh, what i feel experimentation is now devolving into is A popularity contest hey i've I've come up with these amazing ideas and they're winning every time i come up with an idea it's winning when really i feel experiment i think i mentioned this in previous podcasts as well experimentation is is only a way for you to put your hypothesis forward and for the experiment to really decide whether you know as it runs in those conditions that you've you've uh, uh, put in whether your hypothesis is valid or not right
2: but That's I think that I think that moves good, on yeah. to, that moves on to the next stage is it is why is it your hypothesis yeah it's if right, we're yep. bringing if we're bringing value to the business if you want to get that respect and want to get that kind of thing then your job ultimately again this comes into more that aspirational side of things when you are that that single person in the one person department but mm-hmm. aspirationally you want to be at a point where they maybe come to you for advice for how to frame it things to consider in terms of how to test it whether it is testable and whether it even needs testing which yeah. i think we're probably going to run out of time to talk about that particular but one of the one of the myths i wanted to put forward was everything needs testing it's yeah. like that'd be lovely but no there are other ways so, to improve performance
1: talk, and, talk about other myths tim i think what we should do and this was suggested
2: by mel is part we def- two need a part two for this yeah, yeah myth myth the final myth is we could fit all of this into one episode of yeah. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that's our best practice. We thought it would, it would fit into a nice one hour episode. That was my <sighs> misconception. Well,
2: it's worth, worth mentioning that, that um, the TLC have got their, their, uh, podcast with Chad on in a couple of weeks time and they're going to be, I think Chad's going to get his, get his rant on again about stats and two week periods. Fair enough. Yeah. So, so I think weeks.
1: the, the, I think w- what we'll do uh, for everyone attending right now, you happy with us uh, doing a part two? Uh, Or do you want us to continue? You decide. Uh, But no, I think we'll definitely do a part two, uh, because there's, I think, another four points to cover. And I I naively thought we would cover everything, you know, in in this session. But then I think it was Tim that kind of just kept talking.
2: Oh, that's right. (laughs) Yes. I'm going to watch this back with a stopwatch. But I'm pretty sure in terms of minutes spoken, Chad has outspoken me. Fair enough. Fair
1: enough. We, we'll put we'll put a scorecard there, right? But but great stuff, guys. I think I think it was a, it was a really good episode. Um, it's you know it's still it goes against the grain of what's out there in the market, and it might be comfortable, uncomfortable for some of the people attending. But thank you so much for everyone attending right now. Uh, the recording of this will be up on our website, effectiveexperiments.com and on the on the podcast. Check out the other podcasts that we've done. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on the website if you want to see the video versions as well. Uh, there will definitely be a part two. Um, let's um, pencil that in in a couple of weeks uh, because it feels like we do need to go for another hour and a half, I think, for that <laughs> session. But thank you for everyone joining. Tim, always a pleasure to have you. Chad, great to have you back. I, I look forward to yeah. welcoming you back again. Yeah,
2: on that welcome stage. back, Chad. Nice to have you. Nice to have you.
1: Take care. Have a good day, guys. Uh, speak to you all soon. Bye for now.
0: You've been listening to Conversion Nations. Don't forget to subscribe to get notified when we release new updates. Conversion Nations is brought to you by Effective Experiments. Want to make experimentation a core part of your business? Request your demo and let us show you how we can help you grow your testing program.